morning, you guys. Um, it's good to see you and good to see this room full of um, familiar faces and also some older faces or some faces we haven't seen around here in a while. And I think one of the things I've loved um, at the end of worship is just turning and seeing who's in the room, uh, who's worshiping, who's in the space today. And I turned and I saw Pumim Kizi, who is one of the uh, founding members of this church. Um, I've seen quite a few people who have visited us uh, from Cape Town today. So welcome those of you who are on holiday with us, including some family, the Addisons, who you may or may not know, who are here from France. And then also just to see the Lagrangers here all the way from Bangor, Maine in the United States. So if you don't know, Josh and Dom are getting married in two weeks' time, which is something we're very excited about. But it was really good to see your uh, friendly faces and your happy smiles. And if you are new, I just want to say welcome. One of the things we say often here in this church is that church is not just an event you attend it's not just a Sunday thing. It's a family you belong to. This is a community of people that love Jesus, are following Jesus, and want to be about the mission of Jesus. So if you're in for that, this is a good church to be a part of. I think I'm maybe a little bit echoey. Is that right? No? Maybe a little bit. So Trav, maybe if you can just play around a little bit there. But Shell and I have actually been away for the last week. We were uh, with Orlando North Church that some of you know. Uh, last year we had our friends Rob and Chase and Jojo come out and do some ministry here and really encourage us and build us up as a church. And I think that is a big part of our mission, is we want to plant and strengthen churches. And this trip for us was a strengthening um, uh, trip. I think some of you are giving me smiles that make me feel like my voice is sounding a bit funny. Is it a little bit weird still? I'm good. Okay, okay. You guys are really throwing me off. Kind of encouraging faces today, please. But we were there. This was like a church strengthening trip. Um, I went and I did their first ever men's camp, which was really fun to have about 50 or so guys together and just really work through the book of Ephesians. It's just amazing being um, a different person in a different space with a different group of people, um, how almost they appreciate a different gift so much more. Kind of like when we have guest speakers and visitors in here, it's amazing just what God will do through someone with a different gift. I'm not the most prophetic person by any means, but on the Saturday night of that camp, I felt like God gave me three prophetic words, one for the church and two for two of the guys in the room. And I shared those quite emotionally as I feel like the Spirit was just doing something through me. And it was just amazing the accuracy with which God spoke through me. There was a, a guy uh, in the room. He's one of the elders of this church. His name is Roger Gannam. He's a lawyer who really defends Christian rights. And you can imagine that being a very, very tough job in a liberal place like Florida. And um, I had this word from out of Ezekiel chapter 3 that God had given him a forehead like flint. It was funny, I shared this word not knowing if this would resonate, if this was even true. I just kind of stepped out on a limb. And he told me, you know what, Grant, I've been listening to an audio book on Audible while I've been driving. And in it, the guy spoke recently about how the, the forehead is the hardest part of the body. He said he'd been driving around thinking about that more and more and more. And then I shared this word out of Ezekiel 3 for him, that God has given him a forehead like flint, that he can deal with some of the struggles that he faces and that God will give him the words to speak. And I just really want to encourage every single one of us that God wants to speak to you. God wants to speak through you. God wants to use you. And I really do believe today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, that God would love to meet with each one of us in a unique way today. And if I've just surprised you or Shell has surprised you with Palm Sunday, and you came in thinking, oh, this church has got kind of a cool Durban beachfront vibe with all of these palm fronds, I assure you there's a little bit more to what's going on today than just a cool decor vibe. But to Daryl and Alex who set this up, I think it looks really, really amazing. But basically, coming into this time of year, we've entered into Holy Week. We've entered into the build-up to Easter. And today is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. It's the day where the church remembers Jesus entering into Jerusalem and the final week of his life building up to his crucifixion and his death on the cross. 
And it's kind of a big deal. The crucifixion is a big deal, not just for Christians, but for the world. And in the Bible, we see this all throughout the New Testament. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels or biographies of Jesus' life, we see that, well, they don't really mention the birth of Jesus too much. Only two of his biographers mention that. And they mention his death and resurrection, but the resurrection is not highlighted too much. In fact, we get a little bit of detail about Jesus rising from the dead and what happens afterwards. And I'm like one of those guys who's like, tell me more. I would love to know more about Jesus' birth and what happened around there. And also what happened after his death? Like, what did he experience uh, while he was dead? And then when he rose from the dead, what did he do? What was the detail around what he said in those 40 days before he ascended to heaven? But all four of those biographies of Jesus' life spend at least a third of their time, at least a third of their content focused on the last week of Jesus' life and on his crucifixion and his death. In fact, John, Jesus' best friend, spends about a half, maybe just over half, of the 21 chapters that he writes speaking about Jesus and the crucifixion and the last week of his life. And I want to say that because that is the central point of human history. Jesus' death on the cross is the most central point in the history of the world, not just for the church, but for everyone. And if you're sitting there asking, but why? And what does this event that happened 2,000 years ago have to do anything with me or my friends or my family here in Durban today? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you do have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 12. This is one of the passages that looks at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we're going to look at that a little bit today and look at the reason that he came. Barbara, please come in. We've got some seats for you. We'd love you to take a seat. Okay, perfect, perfect. John 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered the things that had been written about him and that had been done to him. Now listen, there's a lot that is going on in this passage that can be missed if we don't have the proper context of what is really going on behind the scenes here. Firstly, Jesus rides into town on a donkey, which might not be what you would expect from Jesus, this coming king. But actually him coming in this way, coming riding a donkey, was fulfilling a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies out of Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118 and a number of other places. But again, this isn't what you'd really expect from a king. You know, if a king was showing up in Durban today, you wouldn't expect him riding in on a Toyota. You'd expect maybe like a BMW or a Mercedes-Benz or, I don't know, a Ferrari, a Maybach, something pretty fancy. But Jesus shows up on this Toyota and this donkey into town as this king. And it makes a lot of sense if you know anything about Jesus, because Jesus is this humble king, this servant king, not this king who came to rule and reign in this tyrannical kind of way but this king who actually came to serve. His leadership was marked by service and sacrifice for his people. And the symbol of the donkey, kind of in ancient Middle Eastern times, was that this was a creature that represented peace. The donkey was a symbol of peace, while the horse was a symbol of war. So you might expect this king to come riding into town, the king of kings, this warrior king riding on a horse, symbolic of the war or the warrior or the kingdom advancing. But he comes into town, the prince of peace, riding on this donkey. And you can imagine that might have disappointed some people. You know, I want a warrior king. I want a hero. I don't want this donkey rider coming to be my hero or my king, you know. But these people give him the benefit of the doubt. 
and they shout this, I guess, chant of Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna, as Jesus comes riding into town, waving these palm leaves as he enters. And this term Hosanna is an expression of adoration and praise and joy. They are worshiping Jesus, but also the words mean save us, save us now. And you can understand this chant, Hosanna, save us now, Jesus. They're worshiping him because they think their hope has been fulfilled. This really is the Messiah. And they're worshiping him because they think their desires for freedom and deliverance have come. He is going to set them free. And they're waving these palm branches because this would become a symbol for the Jews of victory. In fact, over their history, you can understand the Jewish people had had to fight some big battles. And in their victories, what had happened is these palms had become a symbol of victory. We've won. We've overcome the enemy. We are free. And even on the coins that they used at that time, they would stamp these pictures of palm fronds to remember the victory that had been given to them. So that's why they had these palms out. And they were celebrating that the king of Israel was riding into town. But they had a picture of this king in a more military or political sense. You know, they didn't see Jesus the way maybe we do now. They thought he was coming to overthrow the Roman Empire. They thought Jesus was coming to establish a new nation. They thought Jesus was coming to set them free from captivity. So, of course, they're chanting Hosanna. Jesus, Hosanna, save us from our enemies. Save us from the Romans. Deliver us and liberate us so that we can be free like you did in the desert before. So most of the crowd would have understood this. Rich Philodus, a pastor, says, On Palm Sunday, the crowds wanted deliverance from the power of Rome, but Jesus was about to deliver the entire world from the power of sin and death. And because of this, even the popularity Jesus had at first when he enters into town, the hosannas and the palms and the donkey and all of these things would soon fade, and within five days, these same people would be chanting for his blood. They wanted him dead. It's quite interesting. This picture in John 12 and in a number of places is almost like a Disney-fied image, you know? We see Jesus on the donkey, cute donkey. We maybe have this picture of like a sing-along going on. The palm trees are waving. The people are singing Hosanna. Maybe the donkey's talking. Jesus is riding, and it's all like peaceful and happy. And then all of a sudden, the imagery flips to a very grotesque scene of violence and death and suffering and abuse. And we've got this bloody murder scene of a Savior who is dead on the cross. And I think that's like kind of an offensive thing for so many of us. I think we love the thought of the grace of God. We love the thought of the love of God, and we love the thought of God bringing peace into our lives and setting us free and all of that. But when we think about sin, or when we like, have to accept the fact that the Bible calls each of us sinners, when we think about God's wrath and judgment on sin, and we think about blood and sacrifice and all of this stuff, I think that starts to offend us a little bit more. We don't like that kind of thing. But when we get to this time of year, and when we get to Easter, and when we get to the cross, It's hard for us not to be confronted by these parts of the truth of God's word and of our salvation. You see, right at the center of the Christian faith is a cross. And it was not ever the sweet, sentimental symbol. I know probably a number of you are wearing that around your necks today. This cross is the symbol of what Jesus has done. But back in the day, the cross was not something that polite people spoke about. You might mention it, but kind of in like these quiet hums, you know, talking about this with your friends. But not at a dinner party. You wouldn't want to talk about this sort of execution or crucifixion in this way at all. Because this was reserved for the worst of the worst. The people who were crucified were not popular people or good people. They were the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, the worst criminals in society, the outcasts and the misfits, the people you would want to have nothing to do with. So this was not a romanticized image at all. 
And Jesus comes into the scene, and he is the one who goes to the cross. And he is the one who dies on the symbol of rejection and defeat and humiliation. And he somehow flips the symbol of terror and fear on its head and turns it into the greatest symbol of hope and salvation that the world has ever known. The cross represents good news for all people today. Now let me give you a little bit of history about the cross. About 500 AD, the Persians invented crucifixion as a form of torture. And this was something that kind of existed and carried on to 300 AD, about an 800-year run, where the first Christian Roman emperor, Constantine, completely banned crucifixion from the empire. This could no longer happen. But during those 800 years, the Romans actually perfected this form of torture, getting better and better at crucifying people so that this became the most painful way to die that had ever existed. That's why the word excruciating was invented. It was a word that was coined to describe the pain that came from the cross. And I want you to think about that next time you stub your toe, you're walking around barefoot in your house, and you go, ah, excruciating pain. You're saying that is the pain from the cross. It's the type of pain that crucifixion would bring. That is what the word excruciating means. And this was a really slow and painful way to die. Being crucified could last between four hours and nine days as you hung on this cross, slowly struggling for breath, trying to lift yourself up so that your lungs could get enough oxygen that you could keep fighting. And while that was going on, you were feeling the pain of these nails in your arms and in your feet. You could feel the loss of blood going out of your body as you struggled just for a little bit more life. And more than just the discomfort and pain of this is this did not happen privately. This was a very public way to die. You know, this didn't just happen in secret in a corner where no one could watch. In fact, you were put in the most public places in society so that everyone could see you and see you and jeer at you and mock you and throw things at you and could extend the suffering as much as possible. One story I read about the publicity of crucifixion is that in 71 BC, the former gladiator Spartacus, along with 120,000 prisoners, came against the Roman Empire and they fought them and the battle resulted in 6,000 people being crucified and hung along the freeway for about 200 kilometers. I mean, I think we can lose sight of how grotesque and crazy that is. Think about if you set out from here today and decided, I'm going to road trip all the way to Joburg on the N3, and for the first third of your journey, the first two hours of driving, you're just going past person after person after person that has been crucified and killed for their rebellion against the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was a violent death. It was a painful death. It was a shameful death. And it became the symbol of despair that Jesus flipped on its head to become the symbol of hope and salvation that we cling to today. But I want to ask the question, why? Why this extreme level of death and suffering? Why did Jesus have to go through this? Why was the torture and the excruciating pain of the cross something that he needed to go through for you and I? Well, firstly, cultural Christianity tells us that it didn't need to happen. I don't know if you know anything about cultural Christianity, but cultural Christianity will say there's two types of people in this world. There's good people and there's bad people. Those are the two types. And basically the idea is if you are really, really good, if you're one of the really, really good people, then you'll be fine with God and you'll go to heaven one day when you die. It's basically like if you just live a PG-13 or below life, ideally all ages, but PG-13 will do, you're all good with God and he'll love you and he'll bless you and heaven is yours one day, you're fine. Just don't be one of those kind of 18 age restriction people, like doing the really bad things, the naughty things, the things that younger people shouldn't see. Just strike that off your list. So if you do that stuff, you're in trouble. God won't be happy with you 
and you'll go to the other place. So just be really, really good. But there's this huge problem with that kind of way of thinking. And the first part of that is how good is good enough? Like, what do you have to do to be in that upper echelon, that upper percentile? How good do you have to be? And if you're like me, you maybe strategize a little bit, and you're like, what are the really good things? Like, if I do a few good things, boom, I'm going to get bonus points, and I'm really going to jump up the log, you know? And what are the really bad things that I should really stay away for? Because I'm going to make some mistakes, I'm going to do some bad things, but what are the really, really bad things that I need to stay away from? Because if I touch those, then I will be stricken off the list forever. Then I'll have no hope of going to heaven when I die. Because we don't see that in Scripture. If that's your way of living, it's kind of vague around what is good enough and what is too bad. And on top of that, if all we're called to do in this life is be really, really, really good, then why did Jesus have to come? Why did he need to come down and go through the excruciating pain of the cross if all we needed to do was be good people in this world? This is definitely something that I've struggled with. And we live in a country where over 70% of the people in this nation say, I'm a Christian. About 76% of the people in this country claim to follow Christ. But probably for many of those people, it's cultural Christianity rather than a real living faith. And I think that's been like my experience growing up. Just thought, I want to be good. You know, I want to be good at home. I want my parents to think I'm a good boy. I want to be good at school. I want to get good awards. I want people to like me and think well of me. And I definitely want to be good in God's eyes because I want to go to the good place one day. And I think even now, as I've learned the truth of the gospel and the truth of Jesus and the truth of all that he's done for me, I still sometimes slip into that old way of thinking where actually I think the way I relate to God is through the good things I do rather than through what Jesus has done for me. I want to ask you today, are you coming before God based on your goodness and what you have done, or are you coming before him based on Jesus and his goodness and what he's done for you? Because I want to say that way of living is not good news. Cultural Christianity is not good news because it leaves us with this fear. Am I good enough? Is God pleased with me? Am I good enough in his eyes or not? The gospel or true Christianity also tells us that there are two types of people in this world. It tells us there's Jesus and everyone else. And Jesus is the only one good enough or perfect enough or righteous enough. Every single one of us have failed otherwise. Romans 3 verse 10. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. In Romans 3, verse 23 to 24, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to know today, the main message of the Bible is not that you need to be a better person. That is not the main message of Jesus or the scriptures. I think for all of us here, we need to hear the fact that all of us need a savior. It's not just some people. It's not just the people who are doing the 18 age restriction stuff. They need a savior because they're really, really bad. No, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are up to God's standard, and we all need a savior. Jesus hasn't just come to die for a few. You know, those who are not strong enough or good enough or have enough self-control or strong enough will, Jesus has come to die for you and for me and for everyone on this planet. He's come to die in our place as our substitute and to reconcile us to God. And I want to ask you this today because I want to ask you, you might have been in this church for a while, but are you living in cultural Christianity where it's like my goodness, my works, what I do is what makes me right before God? Or have you moved into the truth of the gospel that you come before God confident in what Jesus has done for you? I think one of the central days of God's people in the Old Testament is this day called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. 
And it was a day that was set aside every year as a day to deal with and remember the sin of mankind and the way that that separates us from God. Now, there's a whole lot of prophetic elements on that day in the Old Testament that point ahead to Jesus and what he's done for us and his salvation on the cross and all of that. But I just want to pick out two. And there are these two goats that were part of the ceremony and the sacrifice of Yom Kippur. And these two goats were chosen by the high priest. They were perfect, spotless, without blemish. They were as good as a goat could get. They weren't choosing the runts of the litter. These were real winner goats. And the first goat was the sin offering. And the high priest would go and get this goat, who would be a sin offering. And this goat would represent the sin of the people. So he would take all of the sin on himself. And what the high priest would do is he would slit the goat's throat, and the blood would pour out of the goat into a bowl just before. And the goat would die as a substitute for the people. This goat would die for the sins of the people, showing how seriously God took sin and the wrath of God against the sin of the people. And then what that high priest would do is take this blood and would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, into the innermost place in that temple. And he would go to the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, these two cherubim that were on top that represented the presence of God. And this blood would be sprinkled there in that place to represent the forgiveness of the sins of the people before God. And once that had happened, it would be like the sins of the last year had been wiped clean by the sacrifice of the substitute. Second goat was a scapegoat. And this goat probably had a bit of a better time than the sin offering. And the priest would take the scapegoat and he would lay his hands on this goat and he would confess all of the sins of the people onto this goat. I don't know how long that took. I don't know how he kind of knew. I guess it was kind of this general list of the things the people could do. They were spoken over this goat and were put onto this goat. And then this goat luckily didn't get the knife, kind of given a little gentle kick. It was sent out into the desert. It couldn't come back in to be with the people. It was banished. It had to go out never to be seen again. And that scapegoat was representing what Jesus has done for us on the cross. See, in Psalm 103, it tells us that he has taken our sins as far away as the east is from the west. That goat took the sins on himself, and he took them away. And more than that, in Isaiah chapter 1, it says, Although your sins were as crimson, now you've been washed as white as snow. It was like all the dirtiness and filthiness and wickedness of that sin was put on that goat. It was like the people of Israel were washed clean. They had a clean slate before God. That's what that goat did. And I want to ask you today, do you have any sins that you need to be forgiven of? Do you have any sin that needs to be taken away? Do you have any sin in your life that you need to be washed clean, that you can stand before God? What Yom Kippur, this Day of Atonement, is pointing ahead to is Jesus. Jesus is our atonement. Jesus is our sin offering. Jesus is our scapegoat. And what Jesus did for us on the cross was extremely costly. And I know we've got an interesting bunch of people in this room, so I'm sure if we did get some stories out, you guys could share some interesting ones about ways that people have lavished their love on you. Like things that people have done for you that have been incredibly costly or incredibly sacrificial. And I was thinking of Shell, who's been very generous to me over the years, because I'm a, a very average guy, and she's quite a generous, loving woman. But she's been very kind to me sometimes. Sometimes I just think her thoughtfulness and just the, the I don't know, acts of love have just so surprised me. They've been spontaneous. They've been out of the blue. And I've just felt so loved by her thoughtfulness and her sacrifice and her time and her generosity and all of those things. But I think as a kid, I remember this moment where I was really struck by the power of like a generous, sacrificial love. Well, our family was up in Joburg, where a lot of my mom's aunts stay, or sisters stay, 
And I think we'd probably watched a TV show that I shouldn't have watched as a child because all of a sudden I was pretty scared about getting kidnapped. And I guess being in Joburg is probably not a great place to be watching these crime things and thinking about crime. So I think my parents could sense this, that I was a little bit shaken, I was shook up. And as I was going to bed, as my mom was tucking me in, so I was really little, I wasn't like 18 or something like that. My mom was tucking me into bed, and I think I just asked her, so mom, like, what would you do if I was kidnapped? Because I was having this moment where I'm realizing that kid in that movie was kidnapped by a bad guy. I am a kid. I could be kidnapped by a bad guy. And the cogs were turning in my head thinking, what would happen if that happened, you know? And my mom said, my boy, if you were kidnapped, I would do anything to get you back. I thought, that's amazing. My mom loves me. This is so reaffirming. And then I thought about what we'd just seen on TV, and I thought, but the ransom was like a million dollars. That's a lot of, like, that's, we don't have that. Our family's not rich. Like, we don't have a million dollars. I said to mom, like, what would you do if it was, let's say, a million dollars? I can see her just going, yeah, yeah, I get it. What would you do if there was a million dollar ransom for me? We don't have that money. And I remember my mom looking at me, saying, my boy, we would sell the house, we would sell everything, and we would do whatever it took to get that money to get you back. And like as a, I don't know, four or six or eight-year-old, however old I was, I went to bed so at peace that night. Because my mom, in this little way, had impacted my little heart in such a significant way that I saw my value and how much she loved me. I went to bed knowing my worth, and almost with the security, knowing my parents would do anything to protect me. They loved me that much that they would give up anything They would do anything. There was no length too far for them to get me back, to protect me, and to love me. Now, I'm grateful they never had to do that. can't imagine going through something like that. But what the Scriptures teach us is that Jesus has paid an even higher price for you and I than my parents were willing to pay for me. The ransom was far, far higher than us. And he literally did give everything for you. And he did everything he needed to do to win you back to see you forgiven. See, what happened on the cross was very, very costly. I think we know about the crucifixion. We know about the nails going into Jesus' arms and legs and all of that. But there was stuff going on even before Jesus was nailed to the cross. The first kind of step in this torture process was called scourging. And basically, Jesus' arms would be tied above his head so that the executioner could get the whip in onto his sides and onto his back, onto his shoulders and onto his buttocks. And there'd be these 39 lashes with this cat and nine tails. It was made out of these leather pieces of strap. Some of them had like a metal ball on the end, which was there to, as the whip hit, to tenderize the flesh and maybe even break the bones. Some of them had like a little metal or bone hook on the ends that would go into the back and the sides, the shoulders and the buttocks and the legs, and they would dig in. And you can imagine, some of you have watched The Passion of the Christ, that scene as the executioner pulled back. Those hooks would rip through the flesh, through the tendons, through the muscles of the body, tearing the body open and causing blood to pour out all over the place. Crucifixion was a very, very bloody thing. And I thought about this. I thought about crucifixion as an event. And I thought about Yom Kippur as this event where the goat was slain for the sins of the people. And it freaked me out. This is a very bloody thing to happen. But Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. For you to be forgiven before God, you need blood to be shed for you. Now, I'm quite queasy when it comes to blood and veins and arteries and things like that. I feel like I'm really not doing myself justice at the moment, definitely throwing myself under the bus a little bit, but it's true. I hate blood. I was the guy who walked out of a matric drug talk when the guy was talking about injecting needles in his veins, and just the picture of it made me feel sick. 
So I hate blood. And I think if I was your high priest back in the day, the thought of taking this cute little fluffy goat and taking the snuff and, ah, you know, all of those things, getting the blood, it just wouldn't have worked for me. I think if I was to go and watch these crucifixions and to see people flayed like this with a whip and then watching them bleeding and suffering on the cross, I would just be so queasy. I hate that. I would not represent you well as a church. So I'm glad that's not my job today. But a number of years ago, my sister was going to donate blood, and I was like, I'll be the good brother. I'll go with you. I'll be your moral support or your driver or whatever it was. And I took Chelsea to Cloughbury Primary School, and she went in, and she sat down. And I thought, this is fine. I can handle this. This is not a problem. And there's doctors, and there's nurses, and there's needles, and there's blood bags, and there's all of these things going on. And I watched as they put the needle in. I was fine. As they started to take the blood, I was fine. Until I watched Chelsea squeezing this little thing with her hand. Now, I'm not a doctor. I know we've got some in the room. But basically, I realized that this tube in her arm was taking the blood through this, I don't know, tube and mechanism going up into the sack to the side. And as soon as I clicked what was happening and what each pump with this little ball did, I just went white. Like the, the, the color drained out of my face. I was sweaty. I don't know if you've ever felt that before. And I thought I was going to faint. So I had to go outside. My sister's being the sacrificial hero in the seat. And I'm the one who's too queasy to sit it through. So I go and sit outside. I'm like, man, I'm not going to make it. I have to go to a nurse. I get a little orange juice and my sister's cookies. And I go outside and I eat them and I drink all of them just so that I can be a little bit better. And I kind of cool myself outside until she's done with what she's been working at. And there's this reality that if you or I donate blood, it's probably going to be you, not me. If you donate blood, it's a heroic thing. This is a life-giving act. Because when we give blood, and our country is in desperate need of more blood, we're actually giving an opportunity for people for life over death. You know, you can extend someone's life by giving blood towards them. But on the cross, Jesus didn't just give us more life. He actually gave us eternal life through his blood. Jesus' blood was shed not just so that you and I can live for longer, but so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to God, and so that we can live forever. We will live forever, each one of us, but so that we can enter into the eternal life that is his. Now, after that scourging with those whips, the crown of thorns was placed into Jesus' head, and again, blood trickled down as he felt that pain, and as he was mocked, and people called him the king of the Jews in a joking way. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected and alone and mistreated and offended. And I want to say that because if you're in that space today, if you feel alone in what you're facing, if you feel misunderstood, if you feel hurt by others, Jesus can relate to what you're going through. He can relate to your pain. Next, Jesus, in his weakened state, was called to carry his heavy wooden cross all the way to Golgotha or the place of the skull. And you can imagine this for him. His back has been ripped open by these whips. He's a strong young man, but he's lost a lot of blood already. You can imagine how tired he was. So Jesus wasn't coping with carrying this cross, and they needed to get someone in to help. So Simon of Cyrene is pulled in by the soldiers, and he kind of takes Jesus on one arm, and he's got the cross on his back, and he goes up the hill towards Calvary. And there's this amazing scripture, which it took me a while to see, that Simon is mentioned there in Mark. And it mentions his sons, Alexander and uh, Rufus. And then later in Romans 16, verse 13, we see Rufus, the son of Simon, and his mother serving in the church in Rome. And I've been so struck by that picture of Simon carrying the cross of Jesus, his blood running down him, spending these intimate last moments with Jesus, literally carrying the cross of Christ on his back, knowing what it means to pick up your cross and following him. 
And in those last intimate moments of Jesus' life, hearing Jesus speak, maybe encouraging him, maybe, I don't know, praying for him, I don't know what he did, and then watching Jesus die on the cross for the sins of the world. It seemed like it was this life-changing moment for Simon. And after that day, it seems like he was never the same again, and his family was never the same again. And they became followers of this Jesus who they'd seen crucified. Their family was forever changed by the power of the cross. And then when they arrived at the place of crucifixion, people tore Jesus' beard out of his face. It was this amazing act of disrespect. They pulled it out and they left his face bloodied and opened up. They mocked him. They spat in his face in front of his family and friends. They took out these 15-centimeter nails and they drove them through his arms and through his feet and nailed him to the cross. And you can imagine that after that moment as he shrieked or, I don't know, went through the muffled pains of feeling those nails enter into his body, they had to lift the cross up and drop it down into that hole where he would hang for the next couple of hours. Imagine the jolt of that pain as he went down just hanging on those nails for the rest of his life. And there Jesus hung naked, embarrassed, rejected, mocked by the people around him until he spoke his final words, it is finished. It is finished. And then he died in front of his enemies and in front of those that he so loved with people watching him and thinking that he's a loser, he's a reject, that he's failed, that he's not who he said he was. This man who calls himself the king of kings has died the most rejected, shameful, humiliating death possible. But God was doing something glorious in the midst of that grotesque, painful, bloody scene revealing both the seriousness of sin and his love and reconciling man to God. And hundreds of years before this moment, Isaiah the prophet spoke about this thing that would come. And he described the crucifixion with these words, saying in Isaiah 53, verse 3 to 6, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. This is what Jesus has done for each one of us. This is why what happened 2,000 years ago is so relevant for us today. Jesus was our sin offering. Jesus was our scapegoat. Jesus died in our place to reconcile us to God. And today, as we enter into Holy Week, and as we build up towards Resurrection Sunday next weekend, I want to leave you with two thoughts just to meditate on, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to take communion, and we're going to worship together. The first thought is this. The cross is something done by you. Jesus had to die for your sins. The second thing is the cross is something done for you. God loved you enough to die to forgive you. Let me go through that one more time. The cross is something done by you. Jesus died because of your sins. And the cross is something done for you. God loves you and died to forgive you. Can we stand together and we're going to pray.
I just love us all just to take a moment just to think about what this message is saying to us today, what the cross means for us, what our response needs to be. Whether today maybe you realize I'm actually a cultural Christian. I've thought that I just need to be a better person and God will love me. Or today maybe you've got stuff you need to ask Jesus to wash clean and take away from you. Can we just take a moment just to reflect on his love and his sacrifice and what that means for us?